Welcome to the DealMakers Podcast, sponsored by DealMakers Institute. This podcast is dedicated to exploring and uncovering exciting deal-making truths with those who are making it happen every day. You'll discover ways to leverage and profit from every aspect of the deal-making pipeline, from acquisition to exit. And now, the founder of Ribbon Equity and one of the leaders at DealMakers Institute, your host, Ben Lijon. Hi, welcome to another episode of the DealMakers Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Lijon, and today we have Jake uh, joining us from Bright. Jake, how are you? Doing well, Ben Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And for our audience that um, uh, that may not be familiar with uh, with you or Bright, can you give us an overview of um, of who you are and the, the the company you're representing today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So thanks again for having me. Uh, again, my name is Jake Hardigan uh, with Bright Funding. It's a crowd investing platform uh, connecting small retail investors to technology companies and real estate uh, opportunities uh, for investment through the new Reg CF uh, regulation. So basically letting small investors participate in investments that they might not have legally been allowed to uh, not too long ago, uh, which is really exciting, um, really cool stuff. And I'd be happy to jump into it uh, shortly. Okay, perfect. Thank, uh, thank you for that. Um... And again, for uh, our audience listening that may be new to space, um, can you provide an overview of how crowdfunding work and how was uh, crowdfunding established in the first place? Yeah, so some kind of like background to leading up to where Reg CF, which is regulation crowdfunding, has been allowed. A while back, there were laws written to protect small investors who maybe weren't sophisticated in how they approached investing or if they did invest in private equity or investments that were too expensive, uh, we'll put that term there, they might lose everything. So to protect them, they were restricted and not legally allowed to in many cases. Um, and so that's where you know things had been for a, <laughs> as far as the US is concerned, many, many, many years. Um, until the Jobs Act was put into place about five or so years ago, where the regulation changed to allow small investors uh, to start investing in earlier stage, you know, maybe higher risk opportunities, um, even if they didn't meet the original financial requirements where you had to be making close to a quarter of a million a year um, to be able to even participate. And so this basically opened the doors up to at least the limit of a million dollar uh, investment opportunity. So a, a good example would be buying a million dollar house. You weren't allowed to invest in that as a you know, small investor with a group entity to build or you know, invest in that opportunity before this Jobs Act. Um, now, even if you didn't make that minimum financial requirement, you could participate um, and there's a whole bunch of other benefits that were kind of brought along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, there, there's a lot of uh, activity and interest in this space. Um, and especially within the last uh, uh, last couple months where there's um, uh, 
yep. uh, the, the, the cap was recently raised to, uh, to 5 million. So giving all the activity, all the space, um, one has to ask the question, um, is it justifiable? Um, is the hype, uh, is the hype real? Um, what would you ha uh, have to say about that? Yeah, so a little bit about my own perspective. I got into this space not long after the Bitcoin had hit its first mega peak. And it was a whole environment of technology and democratization hype. Um, this is not the same. <laughs> so uh, that was a big difference in why I ended up wanting to enter this space is that it is very much not a hype process. It's a very controlled, regulated process. But the opportunity and the upside of what it's allowing people to do, because there are so many more sophisticated small investors than ever before with the internet and with you know, education at you know, its largest and people being able to know for themselves what they really want to invest in, not just you know, the Coca-Colas of the world, and you know the large corporations that they can reach through the stock investing, but even like their own real estate or small businesses that they want to help back. Um, that's really what this is allowing, and that five million dollar, you know, raise is extremely justified because the first companies that got into this space um, were at a bit of a disadvantage. So Bright was founded just the beginning of 2019. And only in 2020, after going through a very rigorous process of becoming a registered crowdfunding portal, were we able to then start bringing in issuers to then start raising funds at that original million dollar mark. And this is something that, you know, 40 or so other platforms had done before us. But because of that $1 million limit, the cost of raising funds, the time invested, and the effort to just get up to a million, um, it was it was definitely helpful, but not as much as this five million would be, and it's not going to change the whole. It's not going to rock the boat, if you will. And so you can read about this by the SEC's ruling and kind of the reasoning behind it um, through their website. But to kind of give a synopsis of it, they determined that if they lifted the the limit to five million, it's not going to take away from the Nasdaq and you know the stock exchange. Those are still going to be there. They're going to be fine. Five million is not going to affect any other private markets, you know, VCs and, you know, series A and B and beyond that. These are really just to help those starting companies that maybe have a high technical, you know, threshold to get started, like a manufacturing process, a new technology that they need to develop further. Um, maybe it's just getting rolled out um, to a broader audience and they need to reach that five million or somewhere in between the one and five million that they couldn't originally do. So this is going to lower the cost of raising funds because you're limited for, you know, each year, whatever that minimum amount is previously 1 million, you could only raise 1 million in that year and then would have to run another campaign the next year um, up to that maximum limit again. And they were seeing this happen again and again, and that would basically be charging the companies twice to do the same raise that they could have been doing now in one go. So it's, it's less expensive for the, the platforms to host these. It's also less expensive for those companies to then raise those funds, especially if they know they're going to go there anyway. Absolutely. Um, 
And you mentioned that uh, Bright was uh, was started um, in the, uh, early 2019. Um, again, can you provide an overview of Bright, uh, their services, and how um, how Bright is different from, um, let's say, uh, the the other um, the other crowdfunding platforms? Sure. Um, so I touched on a couple of the things, but um, to kind of bundle it up. Bright is probably one of the leading in space and aerospace technology, as well as real estate and other energy-driven uh, companies. We are based out of Orlando, and Central Florida is notorious for space companies, technology companies, in kind of peripheral to them, and then real estate in Florida. Um, it's just what's kind of where we've grown, and that's where you know most of the investment in private markets was already. So that's where we've started and are kind of making our niche, if you will. Um, but we do expect it to broaden from there. But what we do is we have a very highly vetted process to go through and evaluate these businesses, making sure they're legitimate, that they have you know a decent offering to bring to small investors to kind of take away some of the burden of evaluating them. Um, not that you should not still evaluate them. You definitely should as an investor. Um, but we're giving them, you know, basically a platform to be able to offer more complex uh, investment opportunities to the general public, you know, especially if you have a background in investing and you have a good sense of what you're looking for. Um, Bright's going to be able to give you the, the data, the tools, and the opportunities, the businesses um, that you'd want to see. Uh, so that's that's how we're you're making a difference, uh, especially in these early days of the the higher limit mark, where we have a lot of high expensive real estate acquisitions that are looking to be started or, uh, I guess, upgrades. And then the uh, on the other side is the technology. Um, a lot of these are existing technology companies; they already have traction. They're just looking to expand, either develop a new vertical or you know, broaden their, you know, their reach um, as a lot of the companies and, you know, even our team is internationally driven. So pulling in, you know, minds from all over the world, uh, business from all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's great. And um, I, I may even add that, uh, that the platform itself is very uh, intuitive. Um, I spent some time uh, on the platform um, along with uh, some of my uh, uh, investment partners uh, looking through deals. So Great. Um, Thank you. What is, uh, uh, so my next question is, what is the difference between um, product crowdfunding and equity crowdfunding for, for an audience that, that may not know? Uh, yes. So uh, a painfully uh, relevant example and partly why this industry exists um, is the Oculus uh, it was originally funded through a product crowdfunding on, I believe, Kickstarter, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, people were pledging and donating basically to this success. And once it took off, they were expecting some sort of return on their investment, quote unquote. But it's not an investment. If you're going through a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you know, GoFundMe, these aren't investment crowdfunding platforms, their product crowdfunding, you're able to pledge and you might get a, uh, as a backer, a, uh, basically a token of some kind as a incentive to be able to 
you know, donate or offer funds in advance of the company's, you know, either product creation or success. And so that's where the original, you know, crowdfunding and product funding came from. Crowd investing is kind of a subcategory under crowdfunding, but the difference is you're able to invest through either equity or debt or some combination of the two. And so you actually, if say, if Oculus had raised from a crowd investment platform around the same time, they would be offering some portion of their business and those investors would actually be entitled to a return on their investment and to be able to gain the you know massive success that that company now is. Um, and I know we'll, we'll probably touch on it in a second, but it might be a relevant example for in the case of mergers and acquisitions, they were later acquired by like Facebook. So that's the point where once they're bought, that equity is purchased by Facebook. And that's when the shareholders might, you know, exercise their shares and be able to actually make that massive return um, of whatever Facebook was purchasing them at. Absolutely. And that, that, that leads me to, uh, that leads me to my next question. Um, for first-time companies uh, looking to raise capital, uh, how should they gauge how much to set their crowdfunding campaign? Mm-hmm. That's a good question and probably one that we get asked a lot. Um, and it's it's not an easy, like straightforward answer. I would, I'd say the kind of the established expectation is you don't need to raise more than you need. <laughs> so uh, if you are looking to acquire a specific, very valuable asset for your business. Let's say you're in manufacturing, you have a technology that you've prototyped in a lab and you need to go to market by creating a, you know, manufacturable, replicatable product that's, you know, repeatable and not just a once in a time in a lab. That would be something to raise funds for, you know, that might not be you know, grant worthy that they might have been using before to to get their idea off the ground. Um, so they could reach out to investors and say, hey, we're looking to raise funds specifically for the acquisition or the purchase of manufacturing equipment or a contract, you know, that they have with the manufacturer who can produce their product or idea um, and make it real to go to market so that they're not having to promise a bunch of people and not be able to deliver. They would have enough you know, capital to go in and make it happen. And then they could start marketing, advertising, all of the other stuff. They might raise enough just to cover that as well. And so then there's, there's two reasons you'd want to do that. You don't necessarily want to raise more than you need because you don't need just cash flying around everywhere. That's nice. And it's probably safe, but you want to stay lean and you don't want to give up more equity than if you're a founder, than what you want to keep, you know, if you're going to dilute you want to dilute in a controlled and staged manner. And so offering a small portion of your company usually entails a lower share price or we can get into the technicals, but you want to be able to offer just enough that it's enticing to investors, but not so much that, you know, you're giving away everything. Um, That's not good either. And so it's a bit of a balancing act between the price that you're offering, the percentage of your business, and you know the funds you're trying to raise in total, um, those all kind of play a factor in how you determine that. And it's kind of a case by case thing, but usually that's the rule of thumb. And uh, for for companies that uh, 
that's primarily in Orlando. Um, you mentioned there uh, the two main sectors are uh, aerospace and um, aerospace defense, and more so uh, like uh, space or uh, manufacturing companies. Um, what what is the trend there as far as uh, uh, the combination of um, uh, uh, raising debt um, and uh, just crowdfunding and um, pledging equity. Yeah, so I would say there's not been a trend, and that's why we have created Bright. Is there is a little bit of complexity that comes with? <laughs> I'll say a little bit of complexity. It's actually an expression to be called a rocket science, <laughs> you know. And so, not everyone's a rocket scientist, but if we're able to help these businesses that do need capital to start making innovations and technology that take us literally beyond our world, um, we thought that would be something that's worthwhile to, to incentivize and help. And then we also know there's an audience for it. Um, we have two investors who we brought on that actually run the Space Channel out of California. And they're part of that you know, campaign to basically help innovation and technology in this sector. And it, it's really surprising how broad it reaches. Um, if you ask anyone who was growing up during the space race, they could list off all these different products or technologies they would have never thought could exist, um, but came out of NASA's development and innovation. Now, if you could, you know, you might lose count of the number of space technology companies that exist. Um, and that's something that's becoming more and more normalized and the economy that will develop based on just space is astronomical. Uh, and so it's really, it's something that we see on the horizon and that's kind of where we got our name is bright towards a brighter future. And that's generally how we're approaching, you know, the crowd investing space, taking these very complex, very innovative, very, you know, helpful products and being able to bring them to an audience that, you know, understands and gets behind the, the you know, the potential success and the, the betterment of the world by these technologies existing, um, not just real estate, but this more high-end technology side. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I, I wanted to uh, shift gears uh, a little bit. Um, uh, as you know, a lot of our viewers are in the mergers and acquisition space. Um, are they uh, so a few questions uh, in regards to uh, to that? Um, we've been getting a lot of uh, questions, and um, of course, wanted to uh, to to ask uh, you um, uh, about. So, are there any restrictions on how the proceeds of the raise can be used? For example, um, let's say uh, a company in, in your space, uh, so aerospace and defense company. Uh, they're looking to raise capital to actually acquire. Um, maybe they they have a certain part that they need, and it's and it's actually cheaper to acquire uh, a parts company versus making it in house. So, are there any restrictions on how the proceeds can be used? So, I talked to some of our team members. I'm not 100% sure, but from my general understanding, if you're raising capital and you offer equity or debt in your business to investors, you're going to have to explain one, what you're going to use the funds for. So you have to do that. You have to say what it's for. 
as far as what you do with it, as long as it's legal within the general, you know, ruling as far as the, you know, financial regulations and business regulations, that's fine. But you do have to disclose that. And what you might run into with a merger or acquisition is if you are going to use the funds for acquiring another business, you're also acquiring that business's equity and it will likely dilute the price per share of your own business by bringing in a whole bunch of others. Um, and so you can look at this in even just the broader markets. They do that where the, the other company's share price will probably go up very quickly because they're being acquired at a higher price than where they're at. The business that is raising the funds in this example that's going to acquire the other business, those are typically going to you know, dilute and they're therefore going to lower their share price. But it's a private market, so they won't. They'll stay the same. They'll purchase the other one and the shares will be you know, distributed proportionally to each you know, owner's value. The overall company is going to be worth more, but each person's diluted. So that's up to the investor to determine if they want to participate in that. If they see that these acquisitions are going to make the long-term difference and the business will be better for it, that might be a great investment for that investor and they could determine that. But if they feel that it's too risky or if they don't want to, they don't have to. Um, and the, again, it has to be disclosed. So that is for sure. Got it. That, that's actually a, a really good answer. And um, uh, just a follow-up question to that. Uh, in, in terms of, uh, so as you know, in, in the, in, in the capital, um, um, capital table of a company, uh, that if, uh, if a company is raising, uh, you know, funds via loan, of course, that would be a part of the liabilities. Um, if the company is raising funds um, uh, by selling equity. Um, so, of course, it will affect a different part of the financial statement. Uh, my question is, when that company um, later down the road uh, is up for sale or um, even um, merging with another company, uh, how is that uh, treated in, in regards to um, having a history of, uh, uh, you know, going through crowdfunding? Is that more favorable or uh, less favorable towards um, uh, investors? Okay, so let me clarify you're saying if you had to choose between equity or debt as a crowd investor not the business which would you prefer in the situation where the business is acquired i'm a little confused yes so um yeah uh exactly that okay so i mean in any instance debt's going to get paid first if the company is you know defaulting and they, they go bankrupt. If you own debt in that business, you get paid first. Then the private uh, private stock owners or preferred stock, sorry, um, and then common stock. Those are all disclosed in the agreement. And so what's not uncommon is for investors or sorry, in uh, issuers of these offerings on the platforms might offer a convertible note where it's initially debt and then on another round of fundraising, that 
price will be matched to whatever the next price is. Um, and it'll be offered to the original owner of that note. Um, if they don't go and raise more funds, if they flounder and don't succeed, it's still a note. It's still debt. Uh, and so they'll be paid um, with whatever's left to kind of recoup that. Um, this was standardized, uh, I believe, out of Silicon Valley. Um, and so that's still being refined as far as a contract goes. They're called smart contracts, convertible notes, similar names. Um, that's typically what's preferred, especially in early seed stage companies that maybe are kind of 50-50, you know, where are they going? Um, if they already have some traction and they're looking to just offer a small portion of equity rather than taking on more debt because let's say right now there's a large amount of uncertainty uh, in the economy and so they would might you might be willing to give up some of their equity for it um, and that would be less risky as you put it um, than like taking on additional debt so I mean all these things come into play when you know there's an, an issue being offered um, and that's kind of what's exciting about it is you actually get to be at the table and there is discussion on our platform and then other platforms and in even forums beyond that um, about how to evaluate these things. And it's a dynamic process. There's a lot that goes into it. A lot of it's, you know, traditional investing, you know, financial calculations, but, you know, these are startups. There's a lot of risk reward balance and diversification, you know, matched with, you know, the opportunity. And a lot of it also comes down to just what people believe in. If they see something that is going to make a difference, it's worth taking, you know, the investment as equity, debt, whatever it is. Um, it's just better than maybe donating in their eyes. So uh, it's not a great answer for you. There's a lot of ways the, to, you know, let the cookie crumble, but like it, it's, a, it's a fun and dynamic process um, and takes a lot of evaluation and consideration to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we we think uh, this space is very exciting. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities in this space. Um, with that being said, uh, can you provide us an overview of uh, just general um, benefits or uh, uh, or drawbacks um, with both um, raising uh, well, well with both uh, crowdfunding to raise uh, debt and crowdfunding to uh, to sell off some equity? What are uh, some of the risks involved, um, uh, kind of both on the issuer side as well as an investor? Sure. I think there's a ton of upsides, but uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm biased. So I'll try my best to give both sides of it. Um, starting with some of the challenges, right? The difficulty of going through a crowd investment platform as opposed to traditional bank or uh, angel investors or venture capital. Um, you have a lot of options. Uh, this is just another one of them to be able to finance your company, um, especially I would say towards earlier stages. This is not like an IPO. You know, you're not raising, you know, hundreds of millions. Uh, it's a cap at five for regulation crowdfunding and for reg A plus that's up to, I think, 75 now. Um, and these are accessible to a large number of people similar to, you know, the public exchanges, uh, public markets. 
And so you have that ability to reach a ton of people. And it's also a challenge to reach a ton of people because it costs money to market, to bring a name if no one's ever heard of you, right? Um, that's where you know you have the alternatives. You could go to a bank, but they also haven't heard of you. And if you don't have a ton of capital, you're probably not going to get like the most wondrous you know offer as far as an interest rate. And then you still have to pay that back, and it's taking on a liability uh, on your financial statements. And then you know you could go to let's say an angel investor or venture capital, but you also have to hope that they understand what you're offering. Um, and, and being willing to give you a substantial amount of money uh, just on your project alone. So it's a larger commitment from the investors at that point. Um, so they're going to be a lot more rigorous than maybe a typical investor might be because they have more that they're putting at stake. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, I guess, kind of switching over now to the benefits with crowd investing you're able to reach a broad audience. You're able to reach your customers basically and communicate with them your long-term mission, your goals and how you plan to get there. Um, and it's usually in the best case scenario coming from a community that's already behind an idea or your business. And you're just now giving them the opportunity to participate in your business by offering them equity um, or potentially debt. And then with that too, if you've got this broad audience, they're captive, they're in for the long haul. We get a lot of uh, businesses coming to us to want to raise funds because we're not a crowd you know, funding portal that's like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, where their customers are their customers. They're not there to wait a year <laughs> for you to come up with their product. They want it yesterday because um, it's now just seen as a pre-order you know, rather than a crowdfunded, you know, company. Uh, these are investors who are locked in for a minimum of one year uh, before being able to, you know, exchange their equity. Um, and so they get it. They, they're there because they see it as a long-term uh, investment and not something where they're going to be, you know, constantly messaging you through your, your portal or, you know, talking about you as if they're writing reviews on your product before it's ever gone to market. Um, that we've heard uh, from other, you know, issuers who came from other platforms um, that are not crowd investment portals. So you have a lot of more of this discourse, a lot more of this audience, and you're able to raise uh, now a substantial amount of funds without taking on debt. Um, you can take on debt if you want to do like a convertible note, which is very common. Um, it's not typical though that you would just go the debt route. Um, these are people who want to participate in the business in the long haul uh, and are willing to evaluate it and commit, you know, a small portion of what they might own, but, you know, combined together, make a substantial amount. That's a great answer. Um, great answer. And that, that, that leads me to uh, um, my question. So my question is uh, in regards to, um, you know, the, the, the different uh, space that um, we, we're both in, but I think it, it ties up uh, really well. So we, we typically, and I say we meeting um, uh, either private equity or uh, uh, business buyers as a whole, um, we, we typically invest in uh, companies that, that do have attraction uh, uh, in 
typically are uh, profitable, um, you know, with a couple years of operating history. So for, uh, for an investor in my space that wants to, um, that wants to uh, take advantage of, uh, you know, these great new companies, um, do you typically see uh, companies um, that are already profitable? Um, I know you mentioned um, aerospace and defense. Most of the time they are, and they're looking to um, either raise money for a new project or, um, uh, yeah, basically a new project for the most part. Um, on your platform, what, what, what can we uh, expect to see in, in terms of a mixture of you know, brand new startups or uh, companies that are already profitable and you know they're they're raising capital. So there will be a mix of it. If they have not had a year of financials to show, we will not uh, just putting it out there. We are probably not going to accept them. Um, and even if it's just expenses that they've put into it, that might be better than nothing. Um, they have to have been around for at least some substantial amount of time developing, prototyping, creating something of value. Um, if it doesn't appear to be, you know, like in traction yet, like we might suggest, hey, try to make your first sale, even if it's just one to be able to kind of validate your, you know, designs. Um, but some of these technologies are just, they're so complex and so valuable at a broad scale, but not something that you could easily just turn around and deliver um, that they really, they have, you know, maybe millions of dollars already invested and already, you know, created for a product that will only be valuable, you know, at like a hundred million. Um, and it's crazy, but that's kind of what the deep tech uh, opportunities have is these life like literally life-changing technologies so think of similar to like the you know the semiconductor you know with that invention we have computers and the world in our hand you know that's the kind of difference in some of these technologies that maybe aren't profitable because they're not direct consumer immediately so it's not always thinking of it as what is it that we see as profitability. If you're in the mergers and acquisitions space, there are definitely opportunities that will be a faster return. That's why we do have that real estate portion because there are a lot of companies or entities that we have been talking with that have traction, they have revenue. They've probably been running and operating in some cases for 10 to 15 years. And they're just now considering expansion into new markets. And they're looking to offer a portion of their business to be able to help them do that. Um, and it's not uncommon that they offer specific seats for a higher investment to help them do that. Um, so for instance, trying to open up a new market in a different state. And if they had an investor that was from that state that was willing to offer a substantial portion of the crowdfunded equity, um, they might give them more voting rights and actually like a seat uh, to help them determine the best way to do it. Uh, so that's that's some of the interesting stuff and some of the flexibility that comes with these longer standing businesses. Um, but yeah, as far as you would see it more towards the peripheral, not directly in aerospace and uh, as you put defense, uh, but more like the technologies that might supply and support those those businesses. 
Absolutely. And, and speaking of flexibility, uh, I know in uh, the VC space, there's um, there's uh, terms and uh, agree- uh, agreements that uh, protects uh, the, the investor's um, position um, in, in terms of uh, like anti-dilution and uh, you know, uh, things like that. So um, with investors investing in, um, in uh, companies on your platform, um, how are they protected in terms of uh, uh, that investment um, not being able to uh, to dilute over time is is there um, is there certain protections that uh, investors can take? So they will be able to choose which types of offerings. I can't guarantee that the companies they pick are going to succeed. I mean that's beyond my choice. And dilution is actually very common in uh, startups because. As you bring on more investment in later rounds, yes, you di- you dilute, but your evaluation, if you've been doing things right, should exponentially increase. So even if you own a smaller portion of the business, it's worth much more. Um, so thinking of owning one percent of uh, a mom and pop shop, you know, it's not a, not a big deal. One percent of Facebook, that's a big deal. <laughs> it's a substantially different deal. Um, so when you're taking that into consideration, you're looking at, you know, what is it that this business has done so far? What is the price that they're offering for some X percentage? And does that sit well with the investor? And are they okay with it because they see this business taking off in a long time? Like if it's a a high growth technology startup, um, that might, might be worth the risk of taking, you know, only you know a couple percent of the business because that couple percent even if diluted will be worth so much more you know in 10 years or so when they've you know exited or if the company's been around a while they might you know expect you know a larger share because they know it's not gonna it's not gonna grow it's not gonna change um and they're just looking for returns consistently every year through a dividend or whatever else that business might offer. Um, and there's a lot of flexibility in it, but it does come from the issuer. And this is why we get this question a lot is how do I evaluate my business? How do I present that and offer it to investors? Um, and it, it's kind of up to them to make the call and make sure that it's the best they, they can offer because everyone's going to talk about it. It's going to be public and they can communicate and say why they justified the price at the point they offered and for the percent of the business. But once they've said it, they've kind of said it. Um, they have to offer it the same to every other uh, investor that's there. Um, there's no, you can't pick and choose who you want. Anyone is allowed to offer, you know, anyone's allowed to invest. Great, yeah, and absolutely. I, I think uh, that, that that's that's part of the, um, part of the reason why this space is so attractive. It's um, uh, anyone can, can invest. Um, Anyone can invest, and uh, that the cap is um, is as we know it's it's at five million. So the, the room uh, the room to grow um, is definitely there, and we're just really excited to see what the space uh, has to offer uh, in the long term. And um, just uh, as a as a you know a closing 
uh, question here. Um, what are your outlook and view of this space? And can you provide us uh, what you expect, um, uh, given that we're in a um, interesting time, <laughs> to say the least, uh, what, what do you expect the, um, um, the, the space to perform uh, in the short run? And then what is your expectation on the long run? Yeah, uh, both are very bright. <laughs> the, the short run is uncertain. It's destabilized. It's fractured in many different segments. And that is usually, at least historically, when opportunities present themselves to the ready and the opportunistic businesses that maybe have a technology, they have a market that they were thinking of going into, and they maybe have started toward it. Um, this is the moment that, you know, that preparation and timing equals success. So we're seeing a lot of businesses that are taking off now. And if you look at new businesses created, they're, they're growing. A lot of people who are out of jobs, maybe highly skilled people out of jobs, um, now might be starting their own businesses, developing these new technologies, getting into, you know, businesses that will be, you know, the ones that are listing one year, two years from now. And so I see a lot of potential. And this, this uh, $5 million mark could not have come at a better time because it's going to be a potential offer, you know, from maybe existing businesses that are fine. They're probably okay. But like I mentioned earlier, having extra cash in the bank might be something they're thinking about. Um, it might open their doors to this new type of funding because they're going to get more, more people on it. They're going to have more view, more uh, basically spread an audience. And then they're also going to have that capital to help maybe weather the storm and maybe even take advantage of it. Um, and yeah, you probably have seen this in your space with acquisitions. Um, I know a lot of, at least when I was uh, not long ago doing sales and working with, you know, last year businesses that were, you know, they'd been around forever and, you know, got hit a little hard, you know, a little harder and they were already thinking of retiring. That business has now been sold off um, to a larger entity and, and been absorbed. So I think a lot of this is going to be moving about. It's not going to be people sitting in their lane doing their thing. It's a lot of uncertainty, which is going to breed a lot of creativity, a lot of new ideas. Um, so I'm optimistic. I mean, it's definitely a hard time in life uh, for everyone and especially our nation, but I think we're, we're headed to a brighter future for sure. Awesome. Well, Jake, uh, it was definitely a pleasure having you on the show. Um, thank you for the wealth of information uh, you, you provided. Uh, and um with uh, with with our audience, given that they may have additional questions, um, where can they best uh, reach you? Yeah, I mean, they should definitely check out Bright.us, uh, our website, to take a look at the platform. Um, for discourse, we are on Twitter, uh, press. Uh, Bright, um, and then LinkedIn. Uh, I mean, we're on there all the time, just posting and you know chatting. Uh, you're welcome to check out Bright Investments. Uh, we're out of Orlando. You can see us there. Uh, can't miss us. There's a bunch of bright companies out there, but we're probably the brightest, uh, in my opinion. <laughs> so um, we'd be happy to engage and answer any questions they might have after. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, uh, thank you, Jake. And um, uh, I'm sure our, our audience got a lot of information from this episode. And uh, I really appreciate the, the conversation as well. Uh, take care. Yeah, thank you, Benley. I uh, really do appreciate being here. Thanks. You too. Thank you for listening to the Dealmakers podcast. We hope you enjoyed diving deeper into our guest story and insights on dealmaking with our host, Benley John. Right now, there is a tremendous opportunity in the mergers and acquisition space for small and medium-sized enterprises, as it is estimated that in the next 20 years, over $10 trillion will be transferred or lost. To learn more on how to capitalize on this opportunity, visit dealmakersinstitute.com or maspecialist.com.